Hello and welcome to the RCP Medicine Podcast with me, Dr. Amy Burbridge. I'm an acute physician working in Coventry. And I'm Hussein Bashir. I'm a respiratory registrar in the Kent, Surrey, Sussex region. And this is a podcast about general medicine in association with the education department at the Royal College of Physicians. The aim of this podcast is to demystify medicine, recap and clarify general medical topics and discover some interesting historical facts along the way. Prior to this recording, we have not discussed the cases beforehand with each other. And today we are going to focus on hypercalcemia. Over the last few weeks, I've seen quite a few cases of high calcium and it's, it, I thought actually this would be a good topic to cover. The guidelines we are mainly going to cover are the Society of Endocrinology Emergency Guidance, which was released in 2016. So we're going to start with a case and this is Mrs. Cottonwood. She's a 77-year-old lady who presents to the Medical Decisions Unit. She had a routine blood test with a GP. Now she went to a GP just because she was generally feeling unwell, no specific symptoms, and the calcium, adjusted calcium, came back at 3.3 millimoles per litre. On further questioning, she had been feeling tired for a few months, had lost a little bit of weight but she was unable to quantify, she'd had a decrease in appetite, she was constipated and had some generalised widespread body aches and pains. On examination, she looked tired, she was quite frail, and actually she looked quite dehydrated. So her mucous membranes were quite dry. Her observations showed a pulse of 102 beats per minute, a respiratory rate of 20, saturations of 99% on air, capillary refill time was less than two seconds, and her blood pressure was 110 over 65. The rest of the examination was normal. Heart sounds, respiratory examination, abdominal examination, normal. So there's nothing really to find on examination. So what are your thoughts? Yeah, so interesting. And um, I'm glad you brought this case because actually I haven't seen many uh, of these cases. And actually the of those that I have seen have all been incidental findings. Yeah. Um, but the... The first thing is is the value itself, 3.3, so it's obviously elevated. Um, not drastically, but um, it's significant enough for, you know, to take notice of and, you know, investigate further. Um, the very broad symptoms of feeling generally unwell, you know, is it related, is it not related? Um, first thing I'm thinking is, is it an anomaly? So want to repeat that test? Yeah, good um, thinking. Do we have any access to trends or whatever? Um, the fact that she's 77, does she have um, any comorbidities and does she have any, uh, you know, any medicines, polypharmacy that could be a cause of this? Um, but then as you uh, explain a little bit more about the history, you know, the weight loss, reduced appetite, constipation um, makes me thinking about possibly more sinister causes. Okay. Um, so rightly or wrongly, I always think, you know, unexplained high calcium is there an underlying malignancy um but examination is slightly reassuring and that there's no obvious um concerns there hemodynamically stable chest is clear etc etc um so the other thing is this is this actually a, a, an endocrinological issue um 
and I suppose she's got the typical symptoms, doesn't it? You know, we, in med school we learn about bones, moans, uh, groans, yeah. uh, that kind of stuff. You know, she had a bit of abdominal pain. Yeah. Um, so it, it's kind of your typical presentation, yeah. I suppose. So a calcium is 3.3. So normally a normal calcium, the upper limit is about 2.5. So it is significantly high. Now... Normally, um, a calcium of less than three, usually asymptomatic, doesn't require urgent urgent management. Between three and 3.5, if it's very slowly risen, actually it can be well tolerated, and you may not need prompt treatment unless they are very symptomatic. However, greater than 3.5 requires urgent correction, and that is because of the risk of cardiac arrhythmias. So what can happen is there... QT interval on an ECG can become shortened. And by having a shortened QT interval, it can increase your risk of cardiac arrhythmias, particularly ventricular fibrillation and cardiac arrest. So that is a key concern if somebody's got a calcium over 3.5. Hers was 3.3. Now, one of the key things you have to do is to determine, is this an acute problem and that we need to sort out straight away? Or has this been going on for a couple of months, years maybe? We don't have any previous calcium levels on Mrs. Cottonwood. So it's very difficult to know whether it's acute or chronic. But we do know that she doesn't feel great. She is showing some symptoms of hypercalcemia. She's dehydrated. She's got some generalized pains. So actually, we could say that we need, do need to treat this. Now, other symptoms that patients with hypercalcemia may present with are they may be thirsty, decreased appetite and constipated, they may have mood disturbances, so they may be have signs of depression. In very severe cases, very high calcium, they may be confused, maybe even coma. Um, sometimes their kidney function can be impaired, they may have kidney stones. Pancreatitis, so very, very high calcium levels can cause pancreatitis, peptic ulceration, high blood pressure, cardiomyopathies and muscle weakness. As we all know, calcium is very key in muscle contraction. So when you have too much or not enough, it can also affect your muscles. So she did have some symptomatology of that. So in an acute setting, what are we going to do about this calcium level? How are we going to treat it urgently in A&E? So the first thing is fluids. So if she's a little bit dehydrated, probably not had the best oral intake, um, you know, giving... A, a trial run or some fluids um, is not uh, unacceptable, I would yeah. say. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's probably what I would plump for first, okay. um, whilst also sending off, you know, again, a repeat blood test uh, and possibly some other things to try and find an underlying cause yeah. for this. Absolutely. And certainly in the initial phases, rehydration is the key in management. So you want to give intravenous fluids. 0.9% saline is acceptable. Um, Sort of four to six litres in 24 hours, the guidelines suggest. That is a a lot of fluid that is going to be on board sometimes quite elderly patients. So what sort of thing do you want to be cautious of if they're elderly or have renal impairments? Uh, so you don't overload them yeah. um, as you've already highlighted there's some sort of risks of cardiac arrhythmias already mm. um, and yeah she's sounding quite frail already um, so you don't want to be pushing her over the edge yeah absolutely so just really be cautious that um, fluid overload um, doesn't develop if fluid overload does develop very rare cases loop diuretics just 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 
such as frisamide, are very rarely used. Um, it doesn't actually lower the serum calcium, but it helps with your offloading the fluid. Um, but it's not something that we'd routinely use. So you've given us some fluids, um, so you've sort of helped with the dehydration, helped to lower that serum calcium. However, key thing is that we need to find out the cause. So 85 to 90% of causes of hypercalcemia are excessive parathyroid hormone. So um, with that in mind, what investigations would you like to do? Uh, so firstly, a PTH, a parathyroid hormone level. Um, and I'm presuming if it's high, you've, you've got your, your, your diagnosis there. Um, you maybe check your other electrolytes. Um, vitamin D always springs to mind. Is that a, a possible driver for this as well? Um, and then maybe other things, if you're thinking more along the lines of malignancy, yep. so tumour markers, um, LDH, that kind of stuff. Okay. Yep, absolutely. So you definitely want to do a parathyroid hormone level. If your parathyroid hormone level is elevated, now it's always worth checking in your trust what their reference range is because different hospitals have different machines, so parathyroid hormone will be measured differently. But if your parathyroid hormone level is elevated, then that pretty much indicates that the cause is going to be primary hyperparathyroidism. If your parathyroid hormone is suppressed, it normally indicates that actually the cause is probably malignancy because you've got ectopic secretion or parathyroid-like hormone-related peptide secretion, which actually suppresses parathyroid hormone release itself from the parathyroid glands. Malignancy can cause high calcium in a few ways. So secretion of parathyroid-like hormone peptide, we know in some lung malignancies do that. Bony mets. So certainly when you've got osteolytic lesions, that can cause osteoclastic activity. You get bony breakdown. Calcium is going to be released into the serum. Rarely ectopic secretion of parathyroid hormone. And sometimes some tumours may express 1-alpha-hydroxylase, which activates vitamin D metabolism and it can increase calcium that way. And while we're talking about calcium and vitamin D, I thought I'd just give a few key pointers on calcium metabolism. Yes, please. Yeah. So this is something that has fascinated me for many years. Um, so calcium is driven by parathyroid hormone. Your parathyroid gland sits in your sort of neck region. It look, I always imagine it like a bow tie. Your thyroid gland is in the bow tie area. And in your, parath- in your thyroid gland, you have also your parathyroid glands around it. You have four of those. When you have a um, parathyroid hormone release, what this does is it acts on many different parts of the body. So it can act on the bone. It increases osteoclastic activity, which releases calcium into the bloodstream and your calcium level is increased. It may work on the kidneys to activate 1-alpha-hydroxylase, which activates vitamin D metabolism. What vitamin D does is it increases gastrointestinal absorption of calcium, so increasing your calcium, and it will also increase bone again to release calcium from the bones and increases calcium that way. And it can also stimulate your distal convoluted tubule in your kidneys to reabsorb calcium back in as well. So it's increasing calcium by a few mechanisms. By increasing calcium within the kidneys, it also increases phosphate excretion. 
So normally when you have a high calcium level, it's increasing the amount of phosphate being excreted and your phosphate levels um, drop within the serum. So you get a low phosphate and a high calcium. Does that make sense? Yes, crystal sure? clear. <laughs> okay. So it also um, can affect your liver um, indirectly and by your vitamin D metabolism. So it's quite a complicated um, way of how calcium works. Um, but it, I think it's important that we sort of understand that mechanism. And you, you, with the vitamin D issue, I suppose, is that something to um, look for in terms of a cause? Definitely. So if, if you're having too much... Yes. Now... I know over the last two or three years, there has been a huge amount in the press talking about vitamin D deficiency. Lots of patients come in having bought very high doses of vitamin D off the internet. They take what they call the sunshine pill. It makes them feel great, or they think it makes them feel great, but I've certainly had one case of hypercalcemia secondary due to vitamin D toxicity. So they're taking too much exogenous vitamin D. We know that vitamin D acts on the gastrointestinal tract to increase absorption of calcium and increasing the serum calcium. So if you've got way too much vitamin D, your body can't cope with it, you get too much calcium in the serum and you become hypercalcemic. So it's really important that you ask about over-the-counter medications as well. So certainly vitamin D in um, toxicity can cause hypercalcemia. Um, and there are other causes as well, apart from malignancy and hyperparathyroidism, unusual causes of hypercalcemia. Can you think of any? Uh, unusual causes of, in, in terms of... Uh, or rare, maybe not unusual, but rarer causes. Uh, ooh, got me there. Have I stumped you? Sorry. <laughs> um, what about sarcoidosis? Oh, of course. Quite a common cause. Yes. Yeah, so... How does sarcoidosis cause hypercalcemia? Mm, enlighten me. So sarcoidosis is also a cause of hypercalcemia. And the reason this is the case is that you've got enhanced conversion of vitamin D by macrophages, which is one of the main cells in sarcoidosis. You've got too much vitamin D. Again, you're reabsorbing more calcium from the gut back into the serum and you're hypercalcemic. Other causes may be lithium. So lithium may increase calcium absorption in the loop of Henley in the kidneys. Nobody really knows if that's the case. It's sort of postulated. And it may also um, cause suppression of parathyroid hormone, which through negative feedback eventually leads to increased parathyroid hormone, further exacerbating the calcium. But again, this is a postulated cause and nobody's really sure of how lithium actually does cause hypercalcemia. So we've got uh, common causes then, parathyroid excess hormone, we've got malignancy, and we've got our rarer causes as well. And don't forget drugs. Mm. So thiazide. Thiazide diuretics, and also um, things like over-the-counter calcium carbonates. Yeah. So antacids, things like Gaviscon, Peptac, all contain calcium carbonate, which you would have to be drinking probably quite a lot, but can also increase your calcium levels. Yeah. So make sure you take an over-the-counter history. Really important. Okay, so um, in Our Lady, we do some blood tests. You've done parathyroid hormone, you've done vitamin D, you've done phosphate. So a phosphate level is low, vitamin D levels are low, and a parathyroid hormone is very high. 
Any thoughts? Uh, so it sounds like primary hyper-parathyroidism. Uh, yeah. Okay. Which, I mean, obviously needs an endocrine referral, but in terms of treatment, uh, probably go now more the surgical route. There's probably not more we could do on the shop floor. Yeah, absolutely. So if you're thinking that this is probably a uh, parathyroid adenoma, which again, 85% of the cases of hypercalcemia are, then you need to localise where that adenoma is. Now, I always remember from revising for my membership only a couple of years ago, um, was we did a Setsamibi nuclear medical scan to, de- to definitively identify where it is. And again, this is something that is still utilised, although some hospitals are now using SPECT CT. So single photon emission CT scanning, which again can look at the function of the adenoma, but also the exact location. And certainly when you've identified that, then you may want to refer on to a, the appropriate surgeon to investigate for that. Excellent. So what about though, if we think it's malignancy, what type of malignancies may cause hypercalcemia? Um, so look at lung, lung yes. cancers, yep. uh, possibly small cell lung cancer off the top of my head. Um, any, again, any endocrine related cancers, so pancreatic, uh, thyroid, yeah. um, your multiple endocrine neoplasia Yeah, scenarios. so adrenals and, yes. yeah. Yeah, and also multiple myeloma. Yeah. So because it can cause osteolytic lesions. So when you think somebody has a malignancy-associated high calcium, their parathyroid hormone will be suppressed or undetectable. And then you need to do other tests such as an ESR. You want to do immunoglobulin levels, protein electrophoresis, urinary free light chains, looking for multiple myeloma. And then you want to do a chest x-ray. You mentioned lung malignancies, liver function tests, absolutely, bone scans. You might want to do abdominal ultrasound. So really want to look for the the site of the malignancy, if that's a possibility. Um, And certainly in those rarer cases, your um, multiple endocrine neoplasias, um, when they also will have other malignancies associated with it. Now, there is a key difference here in the management of hypercalcemia associated with malignancy or hypercalcemia associated with hyperparathyroidism. So hyperparathyroidism, normally fluids will suffice. But in malignancy, most guidelines, trust guidelines and sort of national guidelines do say that you give bisphosphonates straight away. So you give your fluids and then the bisphosphonates can be used immediately and I was trying the way the bisphosphonates work or a simple way of thinking is they do inhibit osteoclastic activity but they also coat the bone with hydroxyapatite crystals calcium phosphate sort of complex and these absorbs calcium from the bloodstream into the bone makes the bone stronger but it also reduces the calcium and that's used immediately in malignancy permidronate yeah so I was just going to ask that it, it, it's probably recommended that you, in the severe cases, give it IV um, pretty quickly as yes. opposed to the usual oral bisphosphonates, which we see on drug charts. Yeah. <laughs> so you can use permidronate intravenously or zelandronic acid yeah. is another one you can use. It does take around two to four days to work. So you're not going to get an immediate result. So you're giving you fluids to try and help, but also you can be giving bisphosphonates as well now there are other treatments of choice um 
So occasionally, glucocorticoids can be used. Now, the way that steroids work is they inhibit um, vitamin D production. And this is really key in lymphomas or some granulomatous diseases when you've got excessive amounts of vitamin D, or if you've got vitamin D toxicity. Steroids may be useful. Um, again, denosumab, which is a rank ligand inhibitor used in osteoporosis, um, and calcitonin, again, is another drug that can be used in poor response. So a few drugs that, but the key thing is your fluids and your bisphosphonates. Now, I thought this may be just a key time to talk about phosphate metabolism. Yeah. Just because we're talking about calcium. So, um, because it's probably important in those people out there who are advising for membership, may be useful. So, phosphate is excreted in the kidneys. So when you've um, got your action of the parathyroid hormone, it increases calcium absorption, but increases phosphate excretion in the kidneys. However, if you've got a low calcium, um, your phosphate is obviously going to be higher in the bloodstream. Now, this is where renal osteodystrophy comes into play. So if you've got very low calcium in your bloodstream, your bones are being broken down and your calcium is being released and your phosphate is higher. And what happens is your bones become really, really weak and you get renal osteodystrophy and you get those classic brown tumours on x-rays of bones. So brown tumour is caused by renal osteodystrophy, caused by hypercalcemia and hyperphosphatemia. That's a key learning point for exams. Um, so, um, and that condition is also known as osteitis fibrosis cystica. Bit of a mouthful. Bit of a mouthful, yeah. Stick to browns. <laughs> yeah, some stick to browns tumours, absolutely. So, our patient, repeat attender with hypercalcemia. So, even though we found the cause with a hyperparathyroidism, it was still very difficult to keep under control. Um, and... Any thoughts on why that may be the case? Um, I'd worry about sort of exogenous causes, again, drugs, diet. Um, and is this post-operatively? Post- Hasn't had the operation, no. Um, I suppose if it's a sort of highly active tumour, perhaps. Yeah, so the adenoma, obviously, unless it's been suppressed or removed, it's going to keep releasing. But one thing that's wasn't done and that we missed was she was taking a thiazide diuretic uh. so um when she came into hospital she didn't know what medication she took um medicines reconciliation wasn't undertaken in a timely manner and she continued to take a thiazide diuretic at home right so yeah. i suppose there's two causes for her for her presentation then yeah. So that was a really key learning point. Um, and certainly from that, um, I am now slightly obsessive about checking people's drug charts or asking them what they take at home. Yeah. I was quite interested with your your figures, actually, when sort of the, the most common cause is, you know, obviously uh, a high parathyroid hormone, um, because I would, would have thought that drugs or, you know, illicit use, um, sort of unusual intake, dietary intake would be quite high as well. Um, so yeah, interesting to and something that we all should all bear in mind. Yeah, and I agree. I always thought it was medication or something else. So I was I was very surprised that it was so high at eighty five percent. Yeah. So I've got an interesting fact 
um, which so I was reading about lithium and uh, when we first used it and the link with lithium and do you like seven up I used to drink quite a lot actually when okay. I was a kid okay so until 1948 one of the main constituents of seven up was lithium wow and that's where the name seven up came from so the seven was from because it was the seventh iteration of the recipe for the lemon and lime drink but the up was because it made people feel good about themselves and that's because it contained lithium Gosh. so thank, thank god i wasn't a kid back then i know <laughs> so and also um it was again another lithium fact which i found fascinating was that um years ago sort of in the 18th 19th century in the lab uric acid key constituent of gout was treated with lithium. So you put lithium salts into the uric acid and it dissolved it. So lithium was used as a treatment for gout. However, it needed such high doses and it was very, very toxic. So it didn't really work. But they did notice that people who were taking the treatment for gout felt good about themselves. And it was postulated that the cause of depression was gout in the brain or uric acid within the brain. And depression, years ago, was called brain gout. Gosh. <laughs> so, I mean, I, that just made me... It was just an interesting fact. And obviously, clearly, that soon went out of um, medical favour. But um, lithium has a lot to answer. Yeah. I'd love to have seen a post-tape ward round diagnosis uh, list with brain gout on yeah, it. Was... <laughs> yeah, a management seven up. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. So, that was quite a complicated podcast in the fact that talking about calcium metabolism phosphate metabolism but i hope we've talked about the causes of hypercalcemia how we investigate it and how we treat it yeah brilliant thank you very much for bringing that case it's um certainly refreshed my memory about uh sort of the metabolism and the pathophysiology of it um you know the, the values to look out for um and sort of the different two strands of treatment so you know if it is parathyroid hormone related or if it's malignancy related uh, definitely remember using pidmidronate um, before and, and you know I'd hope that that's easily accessible to people up and down the country yeah. Um, and yeah just sort of highlighted the point you know drug chart it's again very simple rehashed point but it's so important particularly when they present at that age thank you for listening to the RCP medicine podcast if you want to get in touch, email us at podcasts at rcplondon.ac.uk or tweet us at rcplondon and we look forward to hearing from you. Goodbye.